All right, well, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22 tonight. We will not cover all of verses 11 through 22. We'll read it and we'll touch on most of it, but there's too much here. Wherever we don't finish, we'll pick up next week as we get back together. Typically, as you know, I've been sitting down and teaching so I could look at my notes more, but um, because of the venue, I think it'd be better for me to stand. And plus, I don't mind doing it. I'm just going to walk around and we're going to hopefully... Uh, be able to follow along. And every now and then I'll run back to my notes here and, 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 and go from there. But tonight we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul goes on and says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are all, all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, as you can already tell, there's a lot of stuff here. And we won't get it all, but we're going to get into quite a bit of it. And so, folks, let me just tell you, I can't wait to show you what's in this passage. Because if you're like most of us, as you're reading along, you're going... I'm not even really sure what Paul just said. I understand there's something going on between the Jews and the Gentiles and there's some kind of a division and Christ has removed it. And well, we're going to start diving into all this. And if you know anything about the background of what was going on at the early church and how uh, the Jews thought that they were God's chosen people and they were in a sense, but not in the way that they took it. They thought that God didn't like the Gentiles and anybody that wasn't a Jew. And there was a separation that happened. And if you know anything about your Jewish history, the Jews, because of their misunderstanding of God's plan, actually wouldn't even go into Gentiles homes. They would even avoid Samaria if they had to go from the southern part to the northern part of Israel. And they would go around Samaria because the Samaritans were people who during the times that they were in captivity went into these other nations, as you know, and and they married with those people and they they were half breeds in the mind of the strict Jews and they wouldn't even have anything to do with them. And there was this division between Jew and Gentile. But now God reveals his plan through faith in Jesus Christ of what the church is and Gentiles are being saved. And the Jews, even at that time, were having some issues. And they were, as we will see a little bit tonight, uh, saying that, well, if you're really going to be a true Christian because it started with Judaism and and all, you got to be circumcised. And there was this, this friction between Jews and Gentiles because of their history, because of their culture, because of all that, that it carried over and it was affecting the church. And so remember, this letter, the book of Ephesians, was written to who? Who was the letter? I know we've been broke for a while. We probably don't remember the introduction. This was a cyclical letter. It was written to all the churches in there, that part of Asia. It was to be passed on. That's why 
some of the manuscripts say to the Christians or the believers in Ephesus, but most of the, a lot of the ones we find didn't have anything there because it was to be fill in the blank and passed on as they made copies of this letter from Paul to the churches. So he's writing to the churches and he's writing to Christians and he's wanting them to understand, look, this is God's plan all along. There's been a division. And so what I, and, and, but Jesus has removed it. But what I want to do as we get into this is I want to show you that all along, it was God's plan that Jew and Gentile would come to know him. That's been that plan all along. It wasn't like, okay, at this point, now the Gentiles can come in. That wasn't God's plan. Let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. Go to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Jesus has been born, and it's time now for him to be dedicated in the temple. In verse 22 of Luke 2, we see, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, this is Joseph and Mary, they brought him, which is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to who? to Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon, who had been told by God that you're not going to die until you see the promised Messiah, he was led of the Spirit that day to show up at the temple at that same time that Joseph and Mary walk in. And when he sees the baby, the Spirit of God reveals to him, this is the one. And he goes and he grabs this baby and he just starts praising God. And even Simeon, who was a Jew, understood that this baby was going to be a light to the Gentiles. God loves the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. But go to Acts chapter 15. Let me show you. I referenced earlier about how in the early church there was some problems with the Jewish believers saying that the Gentiles, okay, they can be a part of the church, but they got to be they got to be circumcised and and Paul and Barnabas had an issue with that. And so they went up from Antioch to the to Jerusalem council there in, in Acts chapter 15 that met in Jerusalem. And as they're wrestling, as the elders got together to argue over this, by the way, if you want to do another whole study about the fact that in a healthy church, there's input from the body, but the real tough decisions are wrestled on by the leaders, those who are spiritually mature. Not everything should be brought to the whole body, because if the kids aren't ready to handle it, they shouldn't be bringing everything before all the kids, you know. In this situation, the elders, when they had this issue, didn't just say, well, we're going to have a church conference. They got alone. And they wrestled over this issue of what does the Bible really say? What is God saying about circumcision with the Gentiles? And we actually are privy to their discussion. And in the middle of it, in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 18, this is what happens. In Acts 15, verse 6, it says, The apostles and the who? Elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. Does anybody know when that was? When did God choose that by Peter's mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel? I'm sorry? 
Uh, actually, Cornelius, it, it, we'll get to him in a little bit, but that wasn't the first time. Pentecost. I don't know if you all ever caught this, but when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and came to indwell the believers as they were waiting in the upper room and praying and the Spirit came, Peter started preaching, didn't he? And, and, and all of these people started gathering and they said, how come we can hear them in our own language? These guys are Jews and we understand them. And you go look at those nations. They're all Gentile nations. I don't know if you caught it or not, but Peter didn't even fully understand it at the time. Because later on, when God tells him to go preach to the Gentile Cornelius in his house, he's like, oh, no, I can't do that. I've never been in a Gentile's house. And remember, God says, whatever I call clean, don't you call unclean. Peter had forgotten that actually the first time the Holy Spirit came upon him and he began to preach in the power of the Spirit, he was preaching in Gentile languages and Gentiles heard. And the 3000 that believed, most likely most of them were Gentiles. Peter says, hey, guys, um. You, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, and by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting to the test by placing putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. It, as it is written. And now they're quoting from the Old Testament. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the who? Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And they said, actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, the Old Testament said that already, that the Gentiles were going to believe. It has been God's plan all along that Jew and Gentile would come to him. What does the Bible say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? Some of you say, I'm not sure what that is. I can get you started. God's not willing that any should perish, but that who? All, all should be come to him and be saved. For God so loved the world. Folks, listen, this Jew-Gentile separation was never God's plan in the sense of how it came about. As you're going to see, he did have a specific reason and a plan to make the nation of Israel out of Abraham. And he had a purpose that he wanted to accomplish for his glory of revealing himself to them as a nation. But they were to be a light to who? The world. The world. They didn't do their job. All along it has been God's plan that Jew and Gentile be saved. And Paul is beginning to deal with this issue now that is happening in their churches because there was division over race. And Paul says, this has always been God's plan. But now he, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. He says, a very, he says it in an interesting way. It's actually a little bit of sarcasm. He uses some of the terms they were using. Uh, and, and he says, therefore, verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And then he goes on and says, remember that you were alienated. Uh, uh, sorry, remember that time you were separated from Christ. But let's deal with that term in verse 11. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh. Is he making fun of them? No, he's actually making fun of the Jewish mindset. See, because the Jews saw themselves, we're the circumcision. 
and you all don't need to have me go into detail about what circumcision is, right? I think you all understand that. But the Jews saw themselves as the circumcision. And those Gentiles, they're uncircumcised. And he says, you guys physically didn't even have circumcision. And you were called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. And then Paul adds this little thing. He says that you Gentiles in the flesh physically didn't have circumcision. And he says, oh, by the way, their circumcision was done by man's hands in their flesh. Did you catch that? I don't know if you caught that or not. In other words, they were putting confidence in what had happened to them, which had been done by who? Man. If you go do a study, you'll see that the Bible says that the idols were made by man's hands and circumcision became an idol. And the Jews were putting more faith in what man had done than what God had done. And so as he starts to talk about this wall of division between Jew and Gentile being blown up, he then says, look, you uncircumcised people, you Gentiles in the flesh. Oh, come to think of it. The guys that were proud of their circumcision, didn't that happen in their flesh, too? And what does the flesh count before God? Nothing. Nothing. You were saying something over here, Susan. What was works-based? Exactly. It was works-based. They're proud of what they had done. You don't put your faith. Well, actually, go with me to Romans. Um, let's go to Romans chapter, chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, look at verses 25 through 29. All along, the Bible's taught us that true circumcision in God's eyes has always been spiritual, not physical. That's why if any of you are sitting here today thinking you're going to heaven because you were baptized. Now, baptism is important. The Bible teaches that it's one of the first acts of obedience after we trust Christ. But if you're putting your faith in something that's been done by man. You're in trouble. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Doesn't matter if you've been circumcised, if you have a heart after God. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit. Do you see that? Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All along, this whole attitude of division between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, God says, I've never looked at the skin. I've been looking at the heart. And if someone's heart is for me and they're in right relationship with me, that's just like circumcision. They're, they've been cut up. Well, circumcision was a picture of cutting away the flesh. Cutting away the flesh and throwing away the flesh. That's what it was a picture of, folks. And God says, I want you to look, cut away the flesh and have a heart that is totally for me. I want you to throw the flesh away. Have no confidence in your flesh. Think about the people in Matthew 7 who say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do stuff? Didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we cast out demons 
And what does God say? Depart from me. I never knew you. If you have any confidence in what you've done, folks, you better make sure your calling and election is sure, as Peter says it. Make sure that your faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Oh, God cares about our doing, but don't put any confidence in your doing because he's looking at your heart. Now, for the sake of time, I can't show you as many passages as I want to. But all along, God's plan was that the Jews... Now, i got to make sure that you understand. As we talk about how Jesus has removed the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, I don't want you to take this too far to say that the church has replaced Israel. There are those who try to do that, and the Bible is very clear, that God, and I'm going to show you this tonight, hopefully if we have time, still has a specific plan that He wants to accomplish through the nation of Israel for His glory. But God himself is the one who said, I'm going to take this guy, Abraham, and I'm going to make a nation out of him. And he did it miraculously to show that it was done by God and not by man. It wasn't just like, oh, I picked this guy who made this baby with Hagar. No, no, no. I picked this guy who is unable to make any babies with his wife because they're both too old and his wife has never had a child and she's past what childbearing age. And as the Bible says in the book of Romans, his body's as good as dead. Now I'm going to do something that everybody knows I did this, and I'm going to make a nation out of this guy right here. And God had a plan for that nation. One of the plans that he had was that that nation, as he revealed himself to those people, would be his light to the rest of the world so that the world would know who God is. Write this down in your notes to go look at these passages later on for yourself. And I'm going to have us just turn to one of them. And I'm going to give you three passages. One is on Isaiah 43, verse 21. Don't turn there. But Isaiah 43, verse 21 is one of the places that there are literally 20 to 30 places I could take you to show you how the Old Testament all along said that the nation of Israel was set apart by God to reveal who God was to the world. But Isaiah 43, 21 is one. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 is another. But I want us to go to Psalm 96. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. But turn with me to Psalm 96 and look at verses 1 through 13. It can't be any more clear of what God's purpose was. And here's a, a, a song that these Jews used to sing, and they missed it. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Who? All the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among who? The nations. His marvelous works among who? All the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people, small g, are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, who? O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him again, all the earth. Say among the nations, plural, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Here was one of their psalms that was so clear that God was for everybody. 
But they misunderstood God's plan. You see, one of the, and this, I have to keep from going on a whole rabbit trail and preaching this because this is one of my pet peeves. But one of the problems we run into is we're pretty smart. And we think we can figure God out. And once we think we got him figured out, we start, first of all, making judgments about everybody else who doesn't see it like we see it. And also we start running ahead like, oh, I know what God's doing. And oh, folks. Bible's so clear, you've heard me talk about it, how you'll never figure him out. It says that in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. But if you'll lay yourself on the altar every day and trust him, he will reveal his will. And he'll show you what he wants you to do a day at a time. Don't think you ever figure him out. The Jews, not understanding God's plan and God's purposes of, plain and simple, folks, the Bible's pretty clear if you look at it and study it rightly, that there are dispensations of how God worked in different time periods throughout the history of man. And that's important because we're about to get to something in a sec here that's kind of cool. But if you look, there was a certain dispensation of how God worked in the garden. And then there was a time period between the garden before the time of Moses in which God worked in a different way. He didn't even give him commands to follow, did he? Then there was a period where he showed up and he says, okay, now as he's already made the nation of Israel, and he gave him the law. There was a purpose for the law. As we know from now from the scriptures, it was to reveal the brokenness of man, and the fact that we can't keep the law, which had been the condition all along, because God had actually been proving that between the time of the garden and the time of the law. How had God been proving that you couldn't keep the law when there was no law? How had God been proving there was still sin? Death. death. Paul said people died all the way from the garden to the time of Moses, and the penalty for sin is death, and everybody kept dying. It's pretty obvious. There must be sin. But they didn't realize it that much. And so God says, now I'm going to have another dispensation and I'm going to give you the law. And during that time period, he even told them what was wrong. And guess what? They still couldn't keep it. And then we have this time period we call the age of grace and the church age. There's different time periods. But the Bible says there comes a point when the time of man comes to an end. And Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And that's another dispensation to come. The Jews, a part of God's plan and why he does things the way he does things, he chose for a time to reveal himself to a people. And they give him his covenants and his promises, which were promises of the coming Messiah and the Redeemer. Pictures of what God, Jesus was going to do through the covenants and all this stuff and their laws and their sacrifices. It was just a picture of what was to come. But he revealed himself to a certain group of people and he said, you're now to be a light to who? the world to reveal who I am. I've chosen to reveal myself to you. Boy, does this not sound familiar about a conversation between Jesus and his disciples right before he went to the cross? When he says, I'm going to reveal myself not to the world, but to you. And what did they say? They said, well, why don't you, why don't you reveal yourself to the world? Folks, let's be honest. Doesn't the Bible say that for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, those of us who are sitting here like nuts on a Tuesday night, ready to hear someone talk about a guy who died 2,000 years ago, and people say he rose from the dead, and we believe he's still alive, and he's talking to us, and he lives in our hearts, and we know we're going to heaven because we've trusted in something that we never saw happen? You're a kooky people. How Praise the Lord. Here's the thing. How come? Because God has revealed to your heart who he is, and you know. Why didn't he just do it to the world? He has chosen for his reasons and for his glory to do it this way. Oh, the Jews were supposed to be a light to the world. How'd they do? 
not so good. How are we doing? There's a reason why we're not doing so good, and we're going to get to that in our study tonight and wherever we get to next week. But listen, there's something key that goes on. The nation of Israel had been chosen by God to reveal that had been his plan. They didn't do a good job. But there was someone else who was also a Jew, whom the Bible also said all along was to be a light, and he did a great job. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, go into, uh, let's go, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I am jumping all over my notes. I had written it in a totally different order, but God's taken us in this direction for a reason, so I haven't got them figured out either. Romans chapter 8. Sorry, thank you. I'm so glad you were listening. I wasn't listening to myself. John chapter 8. Thank you. John chapter 8. Look at, look at John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I'm the light of the world. Now, he'd already said to his followers, you're the light of the world, too. Now, it's tied to the fact that he's in us. He's the reason that the whole world would know who God is. It's been pointing to him. But go with me to the Old Testament to two places real quick. Go to Isaiah 42 and look at another prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about how God's purpose to reveal himself to the world. I mean, again, there are many passages that talk about how he chose the nation of Israel to be that light to the world that the world would know. They misunderstood and didn't do a good job, but they had a problem like we have. They're human. But look at Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 7. Here's a prophecy. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus God says... The Lord, sorry, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out of the out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Who's he talking to? He's actually talking to Jesus. This is a prophecy about my servant, and I'm going to, through him, bring justice to the whole earth, and I've chosen you. He's talking to Jesus. To be a light to the nations, and to open the eyes of the blind. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, bring sight to the blind. Well, it gets a little more clear. Go to Isaiah 49. You're in Isaiah 42. Go to 49, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant... To bring Jacob, that's Israel, back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Who's he talking to again? Jesus. 
Jesus. Folks, this is a prophecy that's pointing to the fact that God had planned for the nation of Israel. We saw it to be a light to the nations. They didn't do a good job. But all the way through, we see these specifics talking to an individual. You're going to be my servant. And, and the, the Jews even realized there's somebody here that he's talking about. And he's also going to be that light to the world. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world. And he fulfilled the Father's purpose. He did reveal who the Father is. Remember, Jesus said this, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. He did reveal who God is through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. Now, let me just kind of quick take a little detour and then we'll get back into our study a little bit here. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to be a light to the world. They didn't do so good. Jesus was chosen by God to be a light to the world and he did awesome. He was perfect. But Jesus also said to those who would follow him and believe in him and that he would give him his spirit. He says, you guys are also going to be my light to the world. And as you've already confessed, we haven't done that good of a job. You know why? Because of our flesh. Let's be honest. You know what happens in a lot of our churches today? We don't want sinners in our churches. They might stain the carpet. I know of churches that say, I know we're supposed to reach the kids out in the streets and tell them about Jesus, but could we do it on a different night than the nights our kids come? I'm not lying. I know of many churches, many, if not most, that that's something that has been said. So they're saying they're not sinners. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, what happens is, is we, we, we have that same problem that the Jews did where we acknowledge we need God, but once we're comfy, we don't want those lost people messing this up. I mean, because those kids might have a bad influence on my kids. And all of a sudden, the church sure starts to look like the nation of Israel, doesn't it? God loves us. And as soon as you get it all taken care of, you can join us. Folks. Unless you know how to let Jesus, who is the only one that can do this right, have victory in your life over your flesh, you're not going to be that light to the world. I don't care how hard you try. And we'll get to how that works a little bit more in just a second here. But let me just tell you, don't beat the Jews up. They're acting just like you and me. We got to understand that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. If anybody in the world is going to see Jesus in me, I've got to let him live his life. I can't act like Jesus or try to be like Jesus. I don't care if I wear a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? You can't do what Jesus would do if you try to do it in your own strength. But the more I really learn to lean on him, the more I learn to let him reveal who he is to myself and I trust him a little bit more and I trust him a little bit more, more of his light that's already there gets to shine out of me. But it ain't going to get out until I trust him. Do I really trust him with my kids, even if there might be some influence from those bad kids? See, that's why what we do in our churches is we really don't trust God. That's why we make all our rules and our manuals and our policy manuals to be so strict. Because, you know, things might get out of control. Do we really trust God? Are we willing to just say, hey, God, what do you got in mind? Where do you want to go? Or do we have to make sure that everything's under control? Isn't that what the Jews did with all their rules and regulations and laws? And well, I know the Bible says keep the Sabbath holy, but here's how. And they started heaping all these burdens on the people. 
And haven't we done the same? And we wonder why people don't want to go to church. We wonder why people don't want to come and hear about Jesus. As I go around the country and I tell, and people think come to me, they say, Jim, <clears throat> people just don't want to go to church anymore. And I say, I know why. They've been. They've been. Oh, but if you really were a group of people that loved each other, didn't care about the color of the carpet or whether the choir should wear robes, and you really just loved the Lord Jesus and you trusted him, I promise you they'll stand outside the building wanting to hear. Problem, most churches don't teach about Jesus. They don't teach about Jesus. You're right. Now, let's get back to our study. Otherwise, you get me running down another whole road here. <laughs> go with me to verse, go back to Ephesians 2. Go to verse four, verses 14 through 18. I'm just, I'm just going to say real quickly about verse, uh, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to what? The covenants of promise. In other words, even though it was God's plan all along that the whole world would know. And God specifically chose to reveal himself to this one group of people. And he gave them his promises. He gave them his covenants. And they're all pictures of what Christ was going to do and who God is. The Gentiles as a whole didn't get to see it, did they? Because the Jews didn't reveal who God was through what he was showing them. They kept it to themselves. And as you just talked about. One of the reasons why the world doesn't love God and love, know Jesus is they, no one's told him what he really is like. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says, Come unto me, you weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, because I am lowly, gentle, humble, and you'll find rest for your souls. We've painted a picture that God's a hard taskmaster, just like the third servant said. And you've got to match up to his standards. You got to, how many people have thought, man, I can't go to church. I'm not good enough. And we have somehow painted a picture of who God is that is totally opposite of who God is, that the people out there think, I got to clean myself up before I can go get washed. Oh, but if they understood that we're still learning and he's forgiven us, but we're a mess too. Come on, come be a mess with us. Man, my, my prayer is that more of who he is gets to shine out of us. But the Jews, they saw the covenants and the promises, but the Gentiles, they were outside of that for the most part. Isn't it amazing how the Magi would know that the Messiah was being born and the Jews were oblivious to it? Oh, don't think God's not getting his work done. Don't think that because the Jews were not being faithful to share that the world wasn't hearing, that God's message had been stopped. Oh, the Bible says that in Romans 1 that he's revealed himself through creation and everyone is without excuse. And even if you haven't even heard his law, he's put his law in everybody's hearts. God's still revealing himself. And guess what? The Bible even says in the book of Revelation in the very last days that an angel is going to go and preach the everlasting gospel to the whole world all at the same time. He don't need us. And so as a whole, the Gentiles didn't know about the covenants and the promises, but it wasn't totally hidden to them because the Magi, who weren't Jews said, hey, where's he going to be born? We've seen a star in the east. But you know, even in the wilderness, Go ahead. Even in the wilderness when, when Moses and God was leading the nation out of Israel, the strangers were welcome. They were. They were. And on top of that, it's been God's plan all along. And on top of that, what did all the other nations say? Wow. The fear of God. They, yeah. Their God's real. Even 40 years later. 
With Rahab, she said we had fear. Exactly. That was 40 years later. God's still getting his message out. Absolutely. He's still getting his message out. Look at verse 13. He says they, that they, uh, he said that they were separated from them and they were without hope without God in the world. I mean, and hopefully you understand the only hope anybody has is through Jesus. But then it says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. And boy, Jim, we want to run with that, don't we? In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here's what I want to get into. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All right. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and he also came and preached to those who were near, the Jews. Because they needed to hear the message, too, because they still didn't understand it. But I want you to see how Paul worded this. And remember, every word is God breathed here. He does not say that Jesus brought peace. He doesn't say that Jesus made peace. What did he say? This is key, folks. It says Jesus, he himself, if you want to actually fully translate it and how we would word it, he himself is our peace. Folks, the only reason that I'm okay with God is because I am now in Christ. It has nothing to do with how good I am today or how bad I was yesterday. It has nothing to do with my acts of the flesh. When I trusted him, he did something supernaturally where he put himself in me and I'm in him. And well, how does it say in, G in John chapter 14, he says, in that day, you'll realize that I'm in the father and you're in me and I'm in you. Folks, I'm in Christ. And because of that, two things now are happening. One, I'm at peace with God. Romans 5 talks about that. We're at peace with God. But on top of that now, the one who went to go reach the unreached, if you will, to say, I want you to know me. His desire is to bring us together, right? How are we doing with that? Not so good, are we? Now, part of the reason is, and I'm just going to throw it straight out and be honest with you. Part of the reason is because many in our churches who say they're Christians aren't. It's not our job to figure out who is and who isn't. The Bible's real clear. Don't try to separate the weed and the wheat. That's not our job. But the Bible's also very clear that many who profess relationship with God don't have it. And there's lots of evidences of whether you're really saved or not. But I'm realizing as I really learned to let him live his life through me, that I don't have to try to be a good Christian anymore. I'm realizing now that I don't have to, you know, how many times have you had people say, don't pray for patience? <laughs> you ever heard people say that? Because then God's going to, no, no, no. The Bible says that patience is an evidence a fruit of the Spirit of God in you. It's something that's just going to come out. It's not something you're going to have to manufacture. God's not going to have to teach you patience. If He is in you, the evidence of Him being in you will be patience. Not something I have to teach you to do now. Do you see the difference how we've had it taught? I remember when I was younger and learning to preach, I preached a whole week of mess, a series of messages on love, 
and how we ought to go love and joy and how we need to have joy and peace and patience. And every one of them, I was so proud of those sermons. And I said, go do it. Guess what? I was wrong. You can't do it. I challenge you to go have some fun trying to be more patient this week. You ever tried it? You know exactly what I'm talking about. But I tell you this, if you learn to rest in the fact that you're already in Christ and you let the truth of what is already accomplished sink in, it's just going to happen. I don't want to run on down this road, but man, I've been having fun over the last few days teaching on coming to me, you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. We thought you work and then you rest. Jesus says, come if you're weary and I will give you rest. Here's a yoke. He ties the work with the rest. Come and learn of me. Learn who I really am. And you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, for years, for years, I would preach. And then on the end of the weekend, I'd crash. But God has been really speaking to me about learning to rest while I work. And it's been the craziest, craziest summer so far. And it's been awesome. We even drove 16 and a half hours one day. And in a couple days, we load the van back up again with all of Nicole's furniture and bicycles and another car as we drive her off to UCF. Life will not slow down. And in the middle of all these miles of traveling and preaching all over Virginia there in that one area and then up in New England and all the stuff and dropping Becky off in New York City. You want to add some craziness to your driving? Go drop your wife off at JFK at 530 at night. Don't recommend it. Were you resting? <laughs> He was teaching me as I sat in New York traffic. It took me an hour and a half to leave the airport and to just get out of the city, an hour and a half. But God has been speaking to my heart. He's been saying, Jim, learn. Don't have a magic sermon and a magic pill and now you'll go, no, learn of me. Learn how to rest in me. And folks, I'm not kidding you. I'm not crashing. I'm not crashing. Oh, I still get physically tired, but there's a difference. There's a difference. You can't go try to do it. He himself is our peace. You having issues with somebody? I love you. And that's why I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. You either don't know Christ or you're not resting in him. Plain and simple. Don't say, yeah, you're right. I need to do better. No, no, no. Listen to me again. If his reality is not being manifested through love and joy and peace and peace. Now, again, I know some days our flesh wins and other days the spirit wins. Don't hear me wrong, but I'm talking over a period of time. You're one of these people that says, I'll never forgive them. And there's a hostility issue between you and another brother in Christ. You either don't know him and you're not saved. But I did. Don't put any confidence in anything you've done. Is he in you? Either you don't know him or you're not resting in him because he himself is our peace and it's going to happen. You will have a heart for those who normally you wouldn't have a heart for because that same God who went and preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. Do you ever look at the father in the prodigal son story? How did he feel about the one who had gone and blown everything? How did he feel about that kid? He loved him. 
ran. The only time you see God run, he ran toward the guy who had totally wasted it and blown it. At the same time, the one who thought he was close, but didn't know the heart of the father. Look at the loving. The father went and pursued him, too. He went out into the field because the guy was throwing a hissy fit and wouldn't go to the party. And he went to where he was. And he said, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. If that's who God really is, and that is who God really is, he ain't sitting back waiting until they get it right and then I'll get... Folks, the message of the gospel is not God's mad at you. And if you ask him, then he'll forgive you. The message of the gospel is you're already forgiven because Jesus already died for your sins. And all you have to do is now receive it. And he's now asking you to trust him and believe the good news of salvation. If that is who God is and that is who God is, you cannot look me in the eye and say, I know I got an issue with this person, but, uh, you know, unless they wait, for, unless they ask for forgiveness, I won't forgive them. You hear me? Because Jesus was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was forgiven them before they even asked. You don't sit back and say, when they get it right, then I'll get it right. What time we got? You guys better listen quicker. Another half hour. <laughs> We're good. We actually have 16, uh, 6 and 5, 11 minutes. We started five minutes late, so we're okay. Go to, well, we won't do that, but Acts chapter 10. Write it down in your notes. Go look. It, Remember how Peter was up there on that roof and he was hungry and waiting for the food to be made? And, and uh, which, by the way, I love that because sometimes my wife says, all you do is sit on the couch waiting for me to make food. And I said, well, Peter was on the roof waiting for them to cook it. So, uh, but uh, um, I'm not Peter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Peter's up there and, 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 and God has him have that vision of the sheet coming down with all the animals that were unclean, remember? And then... He says, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. He says, whatever I've called clean, don't call unclean. Oh, and by the way, if you didn't know this, prior to that, God had already made all that stuff clean. If you know your Bibles, back when Jesus was walking on the earth, and he was telling them, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And the scripture literally says, when Jesus said this, he therefore declared all foods clean. It was already in Mark's gospel. Already made everything clean. And God says, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. And all of a sudden there was a knock on the door in Gentiles. And who was the one that spoke to Peter in his spirit and said, go with them? Because Peter said, Lord, I've never gone into a Gentile's house. And who told him, go in? Jesus. Like I said, you got an issue? If Jesus is in you, he will get it. He will, he will make it right. He will make it right. Don't try to be like Jesus. Just let him talk to you and do what he says. Now, there's something here that I've touched on earlier tonight that I really want to get into now. Jesus has come, right? And through his death on the cross, through his shed blood, he has removed the dividing wall, which would never actually ever should have been there. He's removed that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile through his blood, through his death on the cross. Something also happened when Jesus died on the cross that most people don't know. Remember how I told you there's all these different time periods or dispensations, if you will, that God is going to work this way in this time period and then this time period and so on. But there comes an end of the time of man, if you will. And then Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom. I'm going to show you real quick. That when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus came to the earth himself physically the first time, 
he put in motion the final time period. The Bible says that there's only one last one. And it began when Jesus came to the earth. There's been ages. We're in the last one. Someone says we're in the last days. Yeah, yeah, they've been saying, no, no, no. Listen to me. The Bible says we're in the last days. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these what? Last days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom we, all he also created the world. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 26. And he's in the middle of a conversation here, but he says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, sorry, he has appeared once for all, when? At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Bible's very clear, folks. There are ages that God, and he has his reasons why. Folks, I don't even fully understand his full purpose of the millennial kingdom. You know, if it were up to me, I'd say, God, I would like to be done here and go to that new heaven and new earth thing without a thousand year interperiod, inter but you have your reasons. There are ages. People say, I'm not a dispensationalist. All those dispensationalist wackos. Listen, let me tell you something. If you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament, you're a dispensationalist. <laughs> right? <laughs> Hebrews says really clearly, in the past he spoke this way. Now he's speaking this way. You're a dispensationalist. There's all different levels. And yeah, there are some that take it too wacky where they start saying that this church in Revelation stands for 1642 to 1793. Or, you, know, you can take it too far and try to figure God out too much. I'm not one of those. I'm just telling you, the Bible says there are time periods that God has set for his purposes. And he's done it this way here. And then he revealed himself to the Israelites. And then he gave them the law. And then he's blah, 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 blah. We're in the last one. We've been in the last one for a little over 2,000 years and again, don't try to figure God out. But typically, if you go back, each of these time periods were right around this length. I just share that with you to get you excited. Let me give you one more. Let me give you 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in what? The last times. For the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus was the one who was the obedient servant. And even though we are now to be the light of the world, unless we let Jesus do it through us in our flesh, we'll be as disobedient as the Jews were. And next time we get together, we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at this God's building thing that he said that now he's removed the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and he's made one new man. And he's made us into a temple. And we're going to take a look at that. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we're going to wrestle with the fact that in another place it says that Jesus is the foundation. Here he says the apostles are the foundations and Jesus is the cornerstone or the capstone. Well, what's he talking about here? Which is it? We're going to deal with all that next week when we get together. There's a lot of cool stuff here to show you what God's doing in the church. And it'll help you a lot to understand God's purposes, authority, all that stuff. But as I wrap up, there's two quick little things I want to pull out from that last section here that I want you to kind of let, add this to your thinking as we wrap up. One is this. As I've been a pastor in churches for different years, 20-something years around the country, 
I've always had to deal with the people who would fight to protect the sanctuary. No running in the sanctuary. No cokes in the sanctuary. No loud talking in the sanctuary. That's the house of God. Is a building the house of God? Yeah, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? How about instead of being real reverent toward a building, we show a little honor to each other. Hey, I know it's kind of hard and crazy to go love everybody in this room in that way. Why don't you start with your wife? Why don't you start with your husband? Why don't you start with your kids? And say, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to view, in you, view you in that way, and that will actually have an effect on how I talk to you, don't you think? Oh, it will also help you to be patient in those days when they don't look like the Holy Spirit's there. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Some days, even though I know he's living in me, there's some days I don't, it don't, doesn't look like it. There are some time periods in my life it doesn't look like it. But thank God he is. And then the last thing Paul says, we are being built. We'll deal with that more next week. We are being built into a house in which God dwells. I love that. He doesn't say we're done. See, I could sit here and beat you up on how bad of a church you are, or churches, or well, how bad of a Christian. I hope you've heard tonight as I've talked about rights and wrongs, that I haven't been bashing you. You know why? Because apart from Christ doing it, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to mess it up. We're all going to blow it. And until we get gooder, I have to throw one of those in every week just to bug you. Until we get gooder at letting him live his life through us, we're going to keep making mistakes. We're going to keep not looking like him. His light won't shine as good. But he encouraged me with this. I'm being built. I'm being built. Jim, he says, and he says this to you. If you're weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Don't think your rest is in a vacation. Don't think your rest is in a pill. Don't think your rest is in a better job or a better spouse. Your only real rest for your soul is in me. I got to do this. You give me two minutes. Those of you online, you could always just turn it off. And I'll never know. God showed me something this morning about this that I've never seen. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to go preach the good news of the kingdom. And he says, don't bring any food. Don't bring any money. Don't bring any change of clothes. Remember? He sent them out to go miles. And he's intentionally says, you can't bring any money, you can't bring any food, can't bring any change of clothes. What's he trying to teach them? Reliance. Reliance, total dependence on him. They come back, verse 30 of Mark 6, and report to Jesus all that they had done. Jesus says, you go and check, verse 30, and right after that he says, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Because they had been so busy, they wouldn't, didn't even have a chance to eat. Now, if you know the story, they get in the boat with Jesus to go off to this quiet place. And a crowd sees where they're going. 
And they get there and the crowd's already there. Did they get the rest? Ah, listen. Did Jesus know the crowd was going to be there? He had to have. He's God. This is the same guy that when Peter says, hey, I'll even go to prison and death for you. Jesus actually, come here, let me tell you something. I know everything already. <laughs> and before the rooster even crows, you're going to deny you know me three times. And do you want me to tell you where and how and what words you're going to use? Because you might even cuss a little in this one. <laughs> is there anything he doesn't know? So when Jesus says, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest, he knew there would be no rest in our definition. So they get there. And actually, John's gospel says that Jesus is already prepping them for what he's about to do. Because as he sees the crowd coming, he turns to Philip and he says, how do you think we ought to feed these people? Remember, they hadn't had a chance to eat. Of course, Philip's eight months wait just won't be enough. And he teaches them about rest. Tell you what, they said, they said, why don't you send them off so they can go get something to eat? Jesus says, nah, they don't have to go away. You feed them. <laughs> what do you got? All we got is this little boy's lunch. Tell the crowd to go out into the, you go out in the crowd. You go tell them to sit down in groups of 50s and 100. They had to, by faith, go out in a group of over 5,000, maybe 20,000 people and say, would you please sit down? Jesus wants to feed you before you go. And they had no idea how he was going to do it. And after everybody had been fed, how much was left over? One for each knucklehead. <laughs> Listen, that was the rest. Resting is not a hammock. Those are awesome. There's nothing wrong with them. Resting is totally depending on him in what he said and resting in him and letting him do it. All we do is what he said. That's why you can't live by your manual or your policies. You can't live by your principles. You have to. Well, how does he say it? Man doesn't live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Folks, if you don't know how to hear what he's saying and how to listen to what he's promised and also know how to apply it according to his spirit, you will never, ever rest. And I didn't see that till this morning. I think that's pretty cool. And before I tell you all the other stuff he's been showing me, get out of here. Thanks for coming. <laughs>